Our Old Testament reading this morning and the sermon text will be from Psalm 45. Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Our New Testament reading will be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Now, throughout history, there have been many sorts of kings. There have been strong kings, strong and mighty kings. David comes to mind, a mighty man who drove out not nearly Goliath, but the Philistines from the land. There's Nebuchadnezzar, the man of God, of war that God selected to exile the southern kingdom. And to say nothing of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Richard the Lionheart. These were men who led other mighty men in war, expanding the bounds of their kingdom. There have also been wise kings. Kings like Solomon, the second wisest man who have ever lived on the earth. We have Marcus Aurelius, the the Stoic philosopher emperor of Rome. There's Peter the Great, who actually shipped in engineers from England into Russia to bring the Russian Empire into the Industrial Revolution. These were men who, whose rule brought innovation and, and wisdom to their subjects. Yet still there are pious kings. One need only think of Josiah, who was renovating the temple. And the renovations of the temple were under his commandments and orders. And, and lo and behold, they found a long-lost copy of the law of God. And he used that law to lead a reformation in the waning decades of the southern kingdom. There's Constantine, who allowed Christians to publicly worship without fear of persecution from the empire. Frederick the Wise, who protected Martin Luther, allowing the little spark and ember of the Reformation to grow into a worldwide blaze. These were men devoted to their God and led their subjects to worship him. God used each of these men for his purposes and glory, yet even the best of them were men at best. Though wise, Solomon was weak and led idolatrous women to influence the kingdoms and, and, and to ultimately fracture it. Though pious, Josiah could not stem the degradation of the kingdom of his kingdom. Though mighty in battle, David fell grievously into sin. One of the ways we can summarize the lives of any monarch that has ever reigned in this world is that they may have been good, but they were not nearly good enough. Indeed, even the fact that they have died tells us that they are not good enough. There is only one who is the true king, and no, it's not Aragorn. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem is, what does this actually mean? And perhaps it's more widespread than you may think. To say that Jesus is king means exactly what? I think most Christians would argue, well, that means he's in control of everything. But I would humbly submit that that wasn't nearly good enough for the Westminster divines. In the larger catechism, they give a far greater answer, a longer answer, but this morning I have chosen to limit us to the shorter catechism. Question number 26 asks the question, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is this. Listen closely. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, 
and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now, for you note-takers, there is a copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism on page number 969 in your hymnal, if you wanted to flip there. It's actually going, the answer will be the outline that we are going to use for the text this morning. So the answer to this question is going to be the outline to Psalm 45, but in reverse order. We're going to see that he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies from verses 3 and 5, that he rules and defends us from verses 6 and 9, and that he subdues us to himself in verses 10 through 17. But before we look at the psalm itself uh, with that structure, look with me at the title and preamble of this psalm. The title, those uh, small words at the uh, top before the body of the psalm. It says this, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. We cannot let this pass us by, that this is a love song. Originally, it was composed as a psalm to be used at the celebration of a royal wedding, perhaps between Solomon and his first wife. That was Calvin's view of this passage. Perhaps for another one of the kings of Judah, but, but the point stands that this was a royal wedding psalm. However, the themes and wording of the psalm are so over the top that it's not at all a stretch for the New Testament writers to see that this psalm was ultimately pointing to and about Jesus Christ and his church. And so that will be the bulk of our time spent this morning is looking at how Christ and his church, that this psalm is a description of Christ's kingship over his church and his ruling over the church. Even the unbelieving Jews note in their commentary on this passage that this is absolutely about God's Messiah. And it's tragic that they did not see the truly beautiful one who already came. Verse 1 reads, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. The psalmist is bubbling over with joy and happiness. He's, he's delighting in this occasion, this royal wedding. He's contemplating his king, his magistrate, and he is overjoyed at the occasion. He's overfull with song and is so excited to address his sovereign through verse. I am cer certain that he has some inkling of what he is about to write and, and the mere anticipation of it causes him to break forth in an exuberant song. I pray that by the end, that, God's grace, that by God's grace, we too may leave this service this morning with an equally excited theme in our hearts and minds, addressing our great king. Verse 2 continues, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Look at the way he describes this king. There, there's two themes in this verse that, that strike the psalmist. First, he is the most handsome. Have you ever contemplated the doctrine of beauty? Sad to say, not many systematic theology books actually contain and discuss the topic of beauty, the theology of beauty. It's something that we don't think about too much. After all, isn't beauty in the eye of the beholder? Well, I would humbly submit to you that this postmodern notion of beauty is absolutely not true. And beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Indeed, beauty is things, things that are beautiful, 
are things that in some way represent or, or point us to the truly beautiful one. You see, the doctrine of beauty tells us that God is the sum total of everything that is beautiful. And therefore, something cannot be beautiful if it is opposed to him. Things can be beautiful if they're done in light of his revelation, in light of his creation. We find very beautiful things, even from unbelievers. But they are only beautiful because they are a reflection of what is true and good and beautiful as demonstrated and as evidenced by the creator who created everything. God is the standard of what is beautiful. He is the perfection of beauty. We see this in our modern time when we have rejected the very notion of God in our culture and the degradation of the arts. Nowadays, someone can put a speck of paint on a canvas and call it a beautiful work of art when it has no bearing and, dare I say, is not beautiful. Now, I don't mean to camp too much on this point, but the fact is that the psalmist describes the king and therefore our Messiah and Savior as the most handsome of the sons of men. And therefore, as we look at art and and judge art, we should have in mind, is this a reflection of the beauty of the creator who created all this world? Or is this a stubborn rejection and rebellion against that creator? Another characteristic that strikes the psalmist in the second verse is that he is full of beautiful words. Grace is poured upon your lips. Now we know from Christ that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, if grace is poured out upon his lips, his very heart and everything within him is gracious. This is one who is characterized by graciousness and compassion. This is one who is outward focused, not inward focused. This is one who cares for the betterment of others over even himself. And as a result of his beauty, as a result of his gracious speech, Look at what he says. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is a king who not only rules by divine right, but rules with divine blessing as well. He's not a king who by chance was born into the right family and may or may not rule well, but this is one who receives divine warrant and goodness upon his reign. This is one who will go on forever and ever we could go on and on about all the, these all this morning, but there's a whole other psalm that we need to get to. So we return to our question, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? And the first thing we will see this morning is that he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Verses 3 through 5. What we're going to see here is that this king is no man to be trifled with. This is a mighty conqueror who cannot be withstood. No rebel army, no guerrilla force may resist his rule, at least for long. In verse 3, the psalmist proclaims, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. That is, take up your weapon of war. Have it ready by your side. Be armed and defeat and vanquish any foe who may stand against you. Now the term here is for a short sword, but don't let the length of the sword betray anything about this. For that that same style of weapon in the hands of the Roman legionnaires 
conquered the known world. And indeed, it's the same term used of the flaming swords that the angels wielded outside of the gates of the Garden of Eden to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back in. This was the king's sword of war, strapped into a sheath upon his side, his sidearm, if you will, even at his wedding ceremony. Isn't it interesting that at the wedding of the king, the psalmist charges his sovereign to remain prepared for any problems that may arise? The king is charged to keep his sword with him at the ready. Keep your instrument of violence with you, O mighty one, O O mighty warrior king. Be ready to vanquish any foes that may stand against you. And we know indeed that our God is always ready to vanquish any foe that may stand against him. He says to keep this violent weapon with him in your splendor and majesty. In, in your brightness and magnificence, in your impressiveness and royal grandeur, the question arises, what is splendor and splendiferous and majestic? Is it the king himself or the sword? And dare I say it's both. The sword is the emblem and instrument of the king's wrath and power. The psalmist continues in verse 4, In your majesty write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. We have this image given here of a king riding into battle against his sworn enemies. Now in the time when the psalm was composed, the sons of Korah undoubtedly had in mind a king riding upon a fearsome chariot into battle. Within the ancient world, the chariot was, and its warrior was almost like a modern tank. It was a game changer on the battlefield. In a world when the vast majority of armies were composed of foot soldiers who could only move as fast as they could run, the, the chariot could go places faster than any warrior could go on foot. It would rain down arrows and spears on the flanks of the enemies, and if any of the enemies went to stop the chariot, the chariot could just make a tactical retreat and re-engage the enemy at any further time. The chariot could surround the enemy, could uh, toss in these arrows and spears on the flanks of the enemies that were unprotected. It was truly a devastating instrument of war. However, by the time the New Testament, the the chariot-riding king gave way to the single-horse-riding general and commander. Think gladiator in the first moments of the movie, with Maximus mounted upon his mighty steed ready for battle. Either way, this is a picture of a frightful and terrifying sight to all of the king's enemies. None could withstand this. Note well the motivation behind this king's campaign. Write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. This this king's campaign is dictated by truth. His cause is true. He, He is engaged in vanquishing lies. He's engaged in the the mission of destroying falsehoods. Everything that the king does is for the cause of truth, to advance the truth, to tell the truth, to speak the truth, and to use the truth. Yet his campaign is also defined by meekness, humility. One person defined meekness as power under control. Indeed, when you come across a truly violent, in a 
protective or, or dangerous person in a good sense, the chances are you will never ever know that that person is actually the most dangerous man in the room because he's meek. He has power and it is fully under his control. So too with this king. He does not lose his temper. He is never the first aggressor. He only responds when provoked. And oh, the provocation of this king has grown, has it not in our day? He is also defined by righteousness. A wrong is being made right whenever this king rides out to battle. In a way, it's sort of the difference between World War I and World War II. The first one was empires fighting over land. The second was to stop an evil and murderous genocidal dictator. One, we could almost say, was a bit petty in kingdom building. The other was truly worthwhile in the saving of untold millions of lives. In all his warring, this king is right in all he does. How different this is from all the other kings who ride out for selfish gain. All the other kings who ride out for notoriety and fame and to expand the borders of their kingdom. This king rides for truth, for meekness and righteousness. There are no war crimes. There are no tactical flaws in this king's plan. There are no strategic oversights. This is a great and grand general king who leads his armies and he leads them well. If all this sounds familiar, it's actually the basis for just war theory. First, you must have a just cause in which to engage in the fight. It must be the last resort. You must choose any other option if it's available. It must be proportional. You can't use a nuclear weapon against a conventional fighting force. And it must also be likely to succeed. This last point is the theme of verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. No enemy may stand before this mighty man of war. For every arrow that he looses finds its mark in the beating heart of his foe. Too often we have a picture of Jesus in our heads of the gentle and lowly Jesus. And although he is the Jesus who laughed with the children, he is the Jesus with an ironic and peaceful look upon his face amongst his people. Yet in this psalm, we are given a different portrait of Jesus. A Jesus dressed for battle, mounted upon his chariot with a sword at his side and a legion of archers with their bows strings, arrows knocked and drawn aimed at the vital organs of his enemies. This is a fierce Jesus. This is a fearsome Jesus. This is more akin to the Jesus we see in Revelation 19. Listen to the Apostle John's vision of this conquering king, this conquering general. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Let this be a warning to any of you who may stand against this king. Beware lest one of the king's arrows be leveled at your heart, for his aim is true and his weapons are sure. There may be some in this room who have not trusted in Christ, who have not surrendered to the conquering king, who have not yet been subdued by this glorious king. Beware, for you shall fall, lest you bend the knee to Christ. But on the other hand, this should give us incredible comfort as the king's subjects, should it not? This should embolden us, for we will win, and we are winning in this world. Let us not be a pessimistic sort. Yes, the Western world and its ruins are, uh, uh, the Western world is in ruins. The decay is complete. The Western culture is already dead. But as one pastor noted, composting empires make the richest soil for the growth of the gospel. Our king is at work even now. He is defeating not only his enemies, but ours. Indeed, Adam was telling me this morning about uh, the encouragement of the Foreign Missions Conference and how the Lord is truly at work in Asia. People are coming to faith in Christ in droves under the persecution of the governments in Asia. Make no mistake, God is at work and our King will win. He is defeating not only his enemies, but ours as well. This is not always as we would expect. After all, the greatest victory that this king ever won was in his dying, was it not? Satan and all his minions were defeated at the cross of Christ, where he shed his blood and gave up his life in order that they should die and be defeated and vanquished and removed. Oh, let all of his enemies beware, for this king will end them. Let all his people be encouraged, for this king will defend them. He is ready for battle. He restrains and he conquers not only all of his enemies, but all of our enemies as well. After all, if we belong to the king, our enemies are his enemies, for he is a good king. Moving on in our section, in our psalm this morning, we come to our second point, that this king rules and defends us. He rules and defends us, verses 6 through 9. And this is why we may have comfort. Verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The throne is an emblem of power. The one who sits upon it may speak words, and those who attend to the throne make his commands come to pass. Yet this king, our king, who sits upon his throne, need only speak and all the molecules that he created themselves will obey his command. He needs not servants to do his will, and yet he uses servants to do his will. Indeed, even at the beginning he spoke, and those very molecules and atoms obeyed themselves into existence. How does that work? I have no clue other than the power of God. What was nothing obeyed and became something. This king will never depart from his throne. It is forever and ever and has no end. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness, says the psalmist. 
A scepter is a staff held by the monarch and a symbol of his sovereign authority. The king's scepter is defined by uprightness and righteousness. Indeed, he continues on, you have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. He is not righteous because it's a job requirement. He's not righteous because it is expected of him. He's not righteous because it's the easiest path forward. Rather, he is righteous because he loves righteousness. It is his delight. It is his desire. It is something that he he enjoys and is glad over. Make no mistake, this king is not righteous because it seems to be the easiest path forward. This king is righteous because everything within him loves righteousness. Everything within him rises up with joy and delight at what is righteous and with wrath and hatred at what is wicked. Let us pause here for a moment and consider if the king loves righteousness, what must his subjects also love? Herein is where he reigns over us. When we read his law in the scriptures, we are to obey it as subjects of the king who has given us the law. Of course, this is not out of a sense of being made right. This is not in a sense of becoming right. We already have been made righteous by the blood of the cross and and the active obedience of Christ. The, The righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us so that in God's eyes, even though not in ours, we are righteous. And yet out of that status, out of that state, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, we now may look upon his law and with David say, I love your law, O God. And it is a delight to our souls. It is a guide by which we may worship and and obey our great king. And consider this, this, this king who gave us his law, who gave us his rule, He's not some killjoy that hates fun. You know the definition of a Puritan, right? Someone sarcastically said that a Puritan is someone who is gripped by the fear that someone somewhere might just be having fun. Our God is nothing like that definition, which was, by the way, a very wrong view of the Puritans. They were some of the most joyful people in all of church history. But this king loves to see his people flourish. This king loves to give good gifts. This king loves to empower his citizens and subjects to obey his good rule. It is a delight. Our lives are better and happier when we are not engaged in habitual and obstinate law-breaking, are they not? He rules over us and his rule is good, it is righteous, and it is kind. And we should help one another to remember this, shouldn't we? Psalmist continues, therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. In this time, when the psalmist was writing this, you would anoint someone's head by taking a slab of fat, uh, beef fat probably in this time, It, it was a sheet of fat, and then you would stick herbs and spices into the fat and then roll it up and set it aside. The herbs and spices would infuse the fat in this, and then this may sound gross to our modern sensibilities, but it was truly the most honorific thing you could do for someone. You would roll up that, or you would unroll that sheet of fat, kind of roll it into a cone, and then stick it upon the honored guest's head. 
and the heat from your head that was exhausting would slowly melt the fat. Keep in mind, this is a time when showers were not common, bathing itself was not common, and the fragrant oils would run down the head of the person who was being honored. I know, not the most ideal picture in our modern society, but in these days, this was the greatest thing that you could possibly show a person. This is exactly what the psalmist of Psalm 130 is talking about. He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, right? Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collars of his robes, perfuming even the robes that he was wearing. This is the picture that the psalmist gives here. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Except instead of herbs and spices, this oil, this anointing, is defined by gladness and exuberant joy. Here's the beautiful truth, brothers and sisters. Our king is a king who rules in righteousness and who is incredibly joyful in the midst of his people. This is a God who delights in his people. There, there was a, a book by Michael Reeves, and he made the comment, may we forever put to death the damnable idea that behind Jesus there is a God who is somehow different from him, a God who is somehow miserly or, or grudging towards his people. God, the triune God, is a joyous, delightful God who delights in his people. The most, here's a, another corollary to this, and, and this kind of struck me. Consider this, the most glad and joyful person in heaven for all of eternity will be the Lord Jesus Christ. For as much joy and delight as you and I have in heaven, there will be one who will be even more joyous and more delighted, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. For all the fierceness and might against the enemies, there is far more compassion and mercy, grace, love, and joy for his people. This is a ruler who will wield his sword in battle and cut out the hearts of his enemies and then return home joyous and celebrating over his people. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. From the most opulent palaces and places, this king is known and praised. In Solomon's day, his renown went all the way as far as the queen of the south's kingdom. But in Christ's time, his kingdom will be known in all the world. All the earth and he will call from all the earth people to worship him in splendor and majesty. Can you imagine what a delight to the heart the consummate kingdom will be? We cannot even fathom it. When every knee has bowed in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, when all Christ's enemies are cast away, when even death itself is cast into the lake of fire never to be seen again, Yet as we long for that day, how delightful still is this piece of the kingdom that we enjoy every Lord's Day, is it not? 
How doth Christ execute the office of a king? He restrains and conquers all his enemies and ours. He rules and defends us. And finally, he subdues us to himself. He subdues us to himself. That is, he takes us who once were far off, and he brings us near and conforms us to himself. Where once we were his enemies and rightfully ought to fear his wrath, now we have been subdued and given a new affection. Where we once hated this king, we now love him. Hear, O daughter, verse 10, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and forget your father's house. I don't know if it struck you, but the first time I went through this passage on the first reading, the first thing that struck me was Christ's ultimatum in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, properly understood, of course, Christ is not commanding us to forsake the fifth commandment and actively dishonor our parents. May it never be. Yet he is saying that our affection and devotion to him must be so strong that when you compare it to the filial relationships, it is almost like you hate your father and mother in comparison because you love him so much. Here the psalmist turns his attention to the bride on her wedding day. And he admonishes her not to remember the ways of her old people and old life. Cling to the new one. Indeed, if this were Solomon and his wife were the Egyptian princess, then she would be required by law to forsake her culture and her gods. She would no longer be permitted to worship the Egyptian pantheon or Ra or Horus, Rather, she was to commit herself fully to the living and true God. She was to forget her father's house, forget her people. This is one of the reasons for the the forcefulness of this verse. Did you notice it as I was reading through this? Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear, forget your people. One after another, hear, consider, incline, forget. This is utterly emphatic that this woman is to utterly forsake and utterly forget the old ways and cling to the new. And if this were true of the earthly mortal king and his bride, how much more so the eternal son and his treasured people. We who walk in darkness deep now see the light of morning. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. How foolish would it be to say, But the works of my father, the devil, are so appealing. He has subdued us. He has changed us. He has made us new creations so that we might not walk as we once did in the futility of our minds. We must be like the apostle who could boldly state, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Look at the beautiful motivation for this leaving and cleaving. Verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty. The the king will become ever more attracted to his bride as she grows in her understanding of her new God. Could it be that our heavenly king will grow ever more satisfied in the sanctified, radiant beauty of his church? 
The psalmist continues, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The Net Bible translates this, after all, he is your master, submit to him. The king subdues and the bride submits. The Savior saves and we submit. Yet who would not say that Christ has purchased us, he has loved us, he has set his affection upon us, and we submit to his ruling magnanimous grace and compassion. He rules us and we submit to him. And the king and his bride interweave their lives together. And the result is that the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Foreigners will seek out the bride, bringing her gifts. The pagans will come to the church to seek wisdom and counsel, even bringing gifts. Take heart, brothers and sisters. The more pagan and mystical this culture becomes, the more we stick out like a sore thumb. And the more attractive and set apart we become as God leads his remnant from the ruins of this Western civilization. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, verse 13, with robes interwoven with gold. This bride is bedecked with the finest clothes with no expense spared. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. We can sense the building anticipation, can't we? The bride is prepared. The companions are dressed in like manner. Remember from verse 9 that these brides are royal themselves. With joy and gladness, verse 15, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. They walk along the halls, growing ever closer to the place where the wedding will take place. Does this not remind you of the consummation of all our hopes as recorded in Revelation 19 again? This time verses 6 through 9. The Apostle John again says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the hope of every believer, to be with their Savior. As we approach the final verses in this psalm, it ought to be plain to us that these prophetic words could only apply to the true and better Solomon, our Lord Jesus Christ. For they could never truly apply to any of Solomon's offspring. Verse 16 says, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. The idea here is that the sons of the royal marriage will be as great as the king's father, not less. So in mind here is greater than David and not lesser than David. Additionally, they will all reign as princes and rulers over their own principalities, indicating that the kingdom would grow into an empire. Tragically, none of this would happen to the first son of David, for his very son, Rehoboam, you all know the story, would be responsible for splitting the kingdom, not growing it. Indeed, Rehoboam was far less than David, not greater. None of Solomon's offspring would come even close to the kingdom that their patriarch commanded. So we are left with the only the true son of David being the one who may fulfill this prophecy. 
Indeed, looking at the legacy of the, uh, that the church has left, it is the church that has produced the finest of men and women. It is Christians who were the finest leaders of nations. As the gospel spreads and the church grows, princes are appointed to their God-ordained roles. And even if you are not quite so optimistic, is it not the case that all will bow before King Jesus and we are to rule as co-heirs with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth? I will cause your name, says the word of God, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So how doth Christ execute the office of a king? First, he subdues us to himself, clothing us in his gracious mercy. Second, he rules and defends us through his law and gospel. And thirdly, he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. As I was preparing for this message this morning, John Calvin's commentary on this passage was particularly helpful. And he says these words regarding these verses, verses 16 and 17. Listen to the words of one of our forefathers in the faith. To find, therefore, the true accomplishment of what is here said, we must come to Christ, the memory of whose name continues to prosper and prevail. It is no doubt despised by the world, nay, wicked men in their pride of their hearts even reproach his sacred name and outrageously trample it under their feet. But still it survives in its undiminished majesty. It is also true that his enemies rise up on all sides in vast numbers to overthrow his kingdom. But notwithstanding, men are already beginning to bow the knee before him, which they will continue to do until the period arrive when he shall tread down all the powers that are opposed to him. The furious efforts of Satan and the whole world have not been able to extinguish the name of Christ, which being transmitted from one generation to another still retains its glory in every age, even as at this day we see it celebrated in every language. And although the greater part of the world tear it in pieces by their impious blasphemies, yet it is enough that God stirs up his servants everywhere to proclaim with fidelity and with unfeigned zeal the praises of Christ. In the meantime, it is our duty diligently to use our endeavors that the memory of Christ, which ought to prosper and prevail throughout all ages, to the eternal salvation of men, may never at any time lose any of its renown. Let us pray.